Why would a man who loves these hills and has this magnificent ranch and this vista you've got right here on the river want to uh, ever take the time out to fight these hard and difficult battles in the distant and remote Washington, D.C.? Oh, Walter, uh, I think that we enjoy the time that we spend here. But uh, all of my life, uh, I have wanted to be a public servant. Uh, my father ahead of me was, and I grew up uh, uh, wanting to help people with their problems. And I get a satisfaction and a sense of achievement from uh, constructive efforts on behalf of human beings that uh, you can't get in there. Bobby looked like a great hero and makes me look like a son of a bitch, and 95% of it is completely fabricated. People who want to destroy me. Welcome to Raise the Dead, the only podcast that seeks to dig up America's political history before it can strike again. Our third and final episode about the 1964 election focuses on the man who truly defined it. Lyndon Baines Johnson. As we meet him, he's a political veteran who at one point believed his Southern heritage was something that would prevent him from getting to the top of the mountain. And yet here he finds himself with everything he ever wanted, which is something I can empathize with because in this episode, I get something I have long sought after. And that is the true voice of our subject. Not only does this episode tell the tale from LBJ's side, we also have access to something we've never had in Raise the Dead history. See, after assuming the office of the presidency, LBJ expanded on a tactic he used in the Senate, employing a dictaphone to record phone conversations with friends and enemies all without their permission. This way, he'd have a record of what people promised him. Upon his assumption of the office of the presidency, LBJ installed those machines in the Oval Office, his private residency, and at his ranch in Texas. We will use LBJ's own voice as much as possible in this episode. Through it, you will hear a masterclass in wheeling and dealing keeping his friends and enemies off balance, and telling everyone exactly what they want to hear. And you will see that what history whitewashes as a historic moment with civil rights leading to a thunderous electoral victory is anything but a smooth ride. I'm just going to keep my counsel and uh, try to endure it, but it's a vicious, mean, uh, dirty, low-down stuff about uh, all this uh, damn business. Here is a bulletin from CBS News. Further details on an assassination attempt against President Kennedy in Dallas, Texas. President Kennedy was shot as he drove from Dallas Airport to downtown Dallas. Governor Connolly of Texas in the car with him was also shot. It is reported that three bullets rang out. A Secret Service man has been, was heard to shout from the car, he's dead. 
Whether he referred to President Kennedy or not is not yet known. The president, cradled in the arms of his wife, Mrs. Kennedy, was carried to an ambulance and the car rushed to Parkland Hospital outside Dallas. The president was taken to an emergency room in the hospital. Other White House officials were in doubt and need in the corridors of the hospital as to the condition of President Kennedy. Repeating this bulletin, President Kennedy... It is said that only in completing a goal can you appreciate the effort that it took to get you there. Hustling comes with your head down. A victor can appreciate the miles between where you started and where you are only at the finish line. And so imagine the strange mix of emotions in Lyndon Baines Johnson. He has just witnessed the shooting of a president, a man he alternatively knew as an adversary and a friend, a man for whom he was about to replicate their greatest triumph together. The re-election of a Kennedy-Johnson ticket. Maybe by the end of that term he could think about running. He'd probably have to edge out Bobby. Hell, what is he even thinking? None of this matters anymore. LBJ is at Parkland Memorial Hospital outside of Dallas. He's surrounded by Secret Service agents who fear that he might too face an attempt on his life. They are urging him to leave for Washington as soon as possible. He won't be safer anywhere else but the air. Johnson doesn't want to leave until he knows the condition of the president. It doesn't look good. Who did this? The Reds? Did they just start World War III? Is Johnson now the head of state charged with answering for a dead president? Is there any path forward that doesn't decimate the planet? Breathe. Johnson worries about his friend John Connolly, governor of Texas, a family friend also shot in the attack. God knows what his wife Nellie is going through. Connolly came up as Johnson's Senate aide. That's where LBJ became a player, the Senate. From 1949, he learned and grew with legends like Sam Rayburn. He got to Congress in 37 and then the Senate a little over a decade later. See, that's the thing that none of the rest of them see that Lyndon does. Everyone wants something. You can get a lot in life if you give it to them. And you can make a lot of enemies when you take it away. Lyndon wanted to be president. His last best shot is 1960. Quite possibly the last election before civil rights tears his beloved Democratic Party in half and leaves him on the wrong side of it. LBJ did his best to water down the 1957 civil rights bill so Southern power players would still take his call. This wasn't going to stop. If he was going to go for the big office, it had to be in 1960. And the Kennedys took that from him. Word now from the Secret Service. The president is dead. Time to move. You know, Jack, Jack was different. He did give 
LBJ the next best thing, the vice presidency, but it would come at a cost. All those relationships in the South, Johnson would have to put them to work. The Democrats needed the Bible Belt. Nixon watering down the GOP platform with Rockefeller meant that they still had a shot there. Boy, did Lyndon do a job campaigning in 60, quite possibly his masterwork. You know, another Texan who went to D.C., Cactus Jack Gardner, once said that the vice presidency wasn't worth a bucket of warm piss. Well, for the job that LBJ did for the Kennedys, those boys ought to have given him a bucket of molten gold. LBJ's on Air Force One at Love Field. Secret Service draws the shades. Lyndon gets on the phone to make the calls while the rest of the party that is needed gathers to leave. That VP slot almost never happened. In fact, one member of the Kennedy team specifically had it out for him. Brother Bobby. Oh, it really came to a head at the hotel the day he got the VP nod from JFK. Lyndon was getting himself together after getting the news when who walks into his hotel suite? Bobby. All this about the unions were too mad, the civil rights people wouldn't let it happen. Would LBJ consider the head of the Democratic Party as a booby prize? Hell. Bobby might have even gotten his way if Phil Graham, the publisher of the Washington Post, didn't run back to Jack and tell him what Bobby was up to. Bobby. I mean, Attorney General Robert Kennedy would be what he's called now. LBJ is asked the question, do you want to take the oath of office to become the President of the United States right now or wait until you get to Washington? LBJ gets on the phone with Attorney General Robert Kennedy. Bobby wants him to wait. The fallen hero of Camelot, the first truly glamorous president of the modern era, deserves to return to the seat of national power one last time as its official leader. It would be a fitting tribute. Poetic. But power isn't poetry. All due respects to the Kennedys, but the nation needs a leader. A leader who has been working for this position too long to wait any longer. With chaos on the horizon, there can be no further gap in deciding who's actually in charge. The President of the United States informs his attorney general that the oath will be taken before they depart. And it indeed happens moments later. And it sets into motion so much more. President Johnson will seek re-election in less than a year. And in that time, he will have to be his own man. Not a Kennedy stooge and not a caretaker. He's going to have to honor the following without sacrificing his own stature, 
He's going to need to summon all of his resolve to pass one of the most iconic bills to ever move through Congress. He's becoming president now, but you'd be a real dumb son of a bitch to think that Lyndon Baines Johnson doesn't have the smarts, the will, and the follow through to earn that title on his own. LBJ is now standing next to the blood-spattered widow of John F. Kennedy with his hand on the Bible. Hail to the chief. News dies and becomes history. But tonight, we raise the dead. Who knows the moment Johnson first started worrying about Bobby coming for him. I wouldn't be surprised if it was before Air Force One even touched down. It surely had to cross his mind when JFK's funeral cemented the entire Kennedy family as saints. LBJ isn't stupid. He knows that he just inherited an entire cabinet of Kennedy loyalists. Would they all quit en masse? Would they all back Bobby for the presidency in 1964? LBJ finds out fairly quickly that Bobby isn't going to cut and run. Bobby indeed would stay on in the administration as attorney general for the time being. All the better. It's all hands on deck time. The White House is going to try and unstick Kennedy's civil rights legislation from the House and pass it through the Senate. First things first, Lyndon needs the media by his side if he wants to shame the bill from a House subcommittee that had put it in legislative prison. He speaks with Catherine Graham of the Washington Post, widow to Phil, who had recently committed suicide. So they're going to try to sign a petition that'll give them a hearing in the House so they can discharge the Rules Committee and bring it out. Now, every person that doesn't sign that petition has got to be fairly regarded as being anti-civil rights because he is even against a hearing. I don't care if he votes against the bill after he gets a chance to vote on it, but I don't think any American can say it, he won't let him have a hearing either in the committee or on the floor. That is worse than Hitler did. So we've got to get ready for that, and we've got to get ready every day, front page, in and out, individuals, why are you against a hearing? And point them up and have their pictures and have editorials and have everything else that is in a dignified way for a hearing on the floor. This matter has been there since May. Once we get that, then these cowards will all vote for the bill. Mm -hmm. But uh, we've got to try to appeal to the Southerners, uh, a few of them in border states, to sign that petition. Now, if we could ever get that signed, that would practically break their back in the Senate because they could see that here's a steamroller that can petition it out. Otherwise, now, they send Johnson's a great magic man. Well, I'm not. But you want to bear in mind Mr. Kennedy was able, and he was popular, and he was rich, and he had young Johns helping him, and much more enthusiastic helping him than the Army, and he had the newspapers helping him. If this Mickey Mantle, that's about about an average of 500, and is the star of the Yankees, if he couldn't do it, how do you expect some plug ugly in Johnson City to come in? and do it pretty quick, but we're working on it, and that's part of the effort right now, so you can tell your editorial board sure that will. this rules committee has quietly said they're not going to do anything. 
the most emotional weight was Bobby. In fact, if there was ever a moment when LBJ and Bobby were the most effective together, it's right now. Lyndon is back to doing what he's done best, rooting around like the congressional animal he is, instinctively finding all the pressure points of friends and rivals. And Bobby? Well, he's just as calculating and just as determined to cement this part of his brother's legacy. With all the strife in the South, none would be able to say that the Kennedys didn't do their part. You can get the votes, the votes. Well, he's hopeful. He's going to have to go back, and they're going to have a meeting of the Republicans on Tuesday morning. Did you? Uh, are you in pretty good shape with the the folks that are interested in the bill? Well, we're supposed to meet with them at 4:30. You think that you? Yeah, you know they're not going to be happy, but uh, that nothing makes them happy, mm-hmm. and well, uh, so we just have to uh, accept well, that. Well, I don't they... know. You did a good job making everybody happy on the House side. Well, I remember we went through in that October. They weren't happy when we did it. Yeah, I know. Compared to where this story goes with LBJ and Bobby, these conversations are very matter of fact. No dancing around topics or offering unnecessary flattery. This is just real politic. Who's on the fence? Who stuck up for the bill? Who's going to fold? Who needs to get an attaboy from the president? And sure enough, the bill is freed. It passes the House and on to the Senate. And once it's there, Hubert Humphrey gets it those final few inches. And Bobby's there the entire time. LBJ did what he could. He gave Bobby something. He gave his family a legacy on an issue that Bobby really more than Jack held dear. But just beyond it, he knew he was going to have to take something away. Buoyed by Democratic polls saying that a Johnson-Kennedy ticket would excite party voters in 1964... Bobby begins angling for the vice presidential nomination. And at this moment, it does make sense. Did they have a perfect relationship? No. But they did just make a really good team. Johnson would have to at least consider it. Right? Oh, Please, if Bobby wants this office so bad, he can go to the convention and rip it from him. But Lyndon isn't going to roll out the red carpet for Bobby to sabotage this administration from within. I mean, come on. Give Bobby three months and he'd have stories all over D.C. about how incompetent LBJ is and how it's only because of the gallant Kennedy that the world is being held together. No. LBJ's going to figure out a way to ditch the Kennedy while understanding that Bobby still controls the legacy. And almost everyone around LBJ are still Kennedy men. Johnson's paranoia begins to ratchet up as he's set to take his first steps out of the Kennedy shadow. First things first destabilize the opposition. Johnson needs to create division between the Kennedy family, and what better way than to drop some breadcrumbs that another member of the Kennedy clan could have a shot at Veep. To that point, Johnson drafts Sergeant Shriver 
brother-in-law to Bobby, father to Maria, eventual father-in-law to Arnold Schwarzenegger, to lead LBJ's new signature program, The War on Poverty. And LBJ wants to move fast. Here he is, nudging the reluctant Shriver to make the announcement. Well, you can write your ticket. You can write your ticket on anything you want to do there. I want to get rid of poverty, though. Yeah. And the Sunday paper is going to say it's you, Mr. Poverty, unless uh, you've got real compelling reasons, which I haven't heard. And I'm going to say that you're going to maintain your identification with the Peace Corps and operate it to such an extent as you may think desirable. Not if you, hell, it'll be a promotion. You've got your identification with the Peace Corps. You've got everything you ever had there, plus this. I don't know what the, why they, they would object to that. Unless you got some women that think you won't have enough time to, to spend with them. <laughs> you got the responsibilities, you got the authority, you got the power, you got the money. Now, you may not have the glands. The glands? Yeah. I got plenty of glands. All right. Well, I haven't. I haven't. That's one of my... I'd like to have your glands, Sam. Yeah. Well, you feel that you've got to do it this afternoon? I think I ought to. The press then starts to swirl that it's Shriver, not Bobby, who is the new favorite for a Kennedy legacy Veep pick. Obviously, Bobby doesn't take this very well. And indeed, word starts to circulate that Shriver would not be an appropriate person to carry the Kennedy mantle as he is not from Joe Kennedy's glands. This leads Bobby to get more aggressive. When Henry Cabot Lodge Jr., remember him? Who was the current envoy to Vietnam, resigns from his position. Bobby makes the curious play to take the job. So let's unpack this. Does Bobby ask, knowing that he would never get appointed to that position? Obviously, if he does ask, he has to at least be prepared that Johnson could take him up on it. If Johnson really wants Bobby out of the picture, then Bobby's giving him a chance to eject him halfway across the world. Or maybe this is Bobby showing loyalty to LBJ saying that he would indeed risk his life in a rapidly warming combat zone. What we know for sure is Johnson doesn't trust it one bit. He keeps trying to find the angle on why Bobby would ask, and he can't settle on one. It's here that I think LBJ's paranoia starts ratcheting up even higher. He gives a blunt explanation to his press secretary about why he doesn't think Bobby would be a good pick for Vietnam. I just told him when I got his letter that it was a fine thing and I appreciated it very much, but I couldn't under any circumstances consider it. He asked me today if I wouldn't consider you, and I said no. Yeah, that's, I, Bobby I, told me that again. I, I put just, up to that. I told him no, but... Uh, uh, I don't want Bobby or anybody else to get a lot of feeling in the country that I'm trying to send him, banish him to the aisle. Yeah. What is your reason for not considering him, man? What shall I say to rest on that? Well, my reason for not considering him is that I want him to stay right where he is. 
nothing else. I think it'd just be controversial as hell on the hill. It's another good reason. Yeah. But I don't want to say that. I don't want to no. cut the guy. No. no, 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 you can't say that. I same reason. Uh, there's a lot of reasons. It's just like uh, uh, the uh, same problems we have on the vice presidency. Bobby's a very, very controversial character in this country, and uh, I don't want this to be a Democratic uh, campaign manager's uh, thing, but I don't want to say that to the rest of That might be the most candid moment we have on these tapes with LBJ's thoughts of Bobby. Bobby's controversial. Bobby is best as a campaign manager. And remember the campaign that they ran. LBJ was part of it. This was not for the faint of heart. That was cold-blooded. And he knows that inviting that viper into his house is only going to cause heartache. This courtship, however bizarre, can't last forever. With the convention approaching... Johnson has to solve the Bobby problem, and that's a two-step solution. First, the public explanation. He needs to explain to Democratic voters why he isn't putting the brother of the recently slain president on the ticket in a manner that's classier than his true feelings. Johnson settles on telling the press that after careful consideration, with the government still in flux, he has made the decision not to select a vice president from among his cabinet. This way, he can preserve some element of stability once he wins. It is a flimsy guise, but it works well enough. Second, before he tells the public, he's got to break it to Bobby in a way that won't make RFK go berserk and immediately announce he's running for president. And so, he prepares to meet Bobby in person and give him the news. Uh, I thought that I would just say that I'd give him a lot of thought to this thing uh, and then talk to practically every state in the union and uh, either personally or with my best, most trusted people and that uh, I thought that he had a bright future in the party, and I personally would be happy to see that uh, uh, successful, but that uh, I couldn't this year. I felt it just wasn't in the interest of the party or the country. What do you, what's your analysis? What do you, that's my feeling now. What do you think? Unfortunately, a tape of the conversation which happens in the Oval Office between Bobby and LBJ, has never surfaced. But according to those involved, LBJ tells RFK that the map simply doesn't require a New England man. It's nothing personal. He believes Bobby has a lot to give the party and has a bright future that may well include the presidency. I can't help but wonder if either of them thought back to four years ago. It's a reverse of that moment in the Los Angeles Hotel Suite in 1960. Although this time, 
it's LBJ telling Bobby he's not going to be the vice president, and this time there's no phone call from the end of the hall that can reverse the decision. Reportedly, Bobby's final words to LBJ on the subject are, I could have helped you. How many times must that have rattled through LBJ's head? I could have helped you. I wonder how many times LBJ completed that sentence with, but now I have to hurt you. Johnson made his move, and the man who made a career anticipating betrayal is now haunted by the premonition that Bobby will come for his revenge. And he starts seeing Bobby everywhere. There's a negative article in the Washington Star explaining how much money Johnson has accumulated while in office. Bobby's work! But the thing that, uh, the thing that everybody's going to leap to immediately is that $9 million. Because that sounds like a hell of a lot of money to John Doe on the street. And I think the bad part is that I think this is, uh, I think it's unquestionably these opponents ours for the nomination. No doubt. I think that there's no question but what Bobby and this group have got the star. They're using it, and the play they give it is. Uh, Our enemies for the nomination. That's what this is all about. The Democratic convention is slated to take place in Atlantic City. Sure, there are no other serious candidates who would dare campaign for the role. There's only one man who could take it from LBJ, and it's Bobby. LBJ is informed that Kennedy Day of the convention, which would be a gathering of the surviving Kennedy family, there would be a tribute to JFK, a movie honoring him would be played, was originally slated to take place the first night of the convention. The Democratic convention then, as it is today, was four days, with the formal selection of the candidate on the fourth. Johnson immediately smells a rat. Kennedy Knight would have Jackie up on stage. Bobby would be lionized. All of the crowd, the most sympathetic audience on the planet to honor the slain president will be delegates that would force LBJ to put Bobby on the ticket. Remember in 1960, this is the same Bobby who wrangled delegates like a shepherd to make sure that his brother got the nomination. This is a coup! Over the head of LBJ's own wishes that he told Bobby to his face. Johnson demands that Kennedy Knight be moved to night four. If this ambitious little campaigner is going to jam himself into the veep slot, then he's going to have a few hours to work with and not a whole week. And then, as the convention begins, more trouble hits. Mr. Chairman, and to the Credentials Committee, it was the 31st of August in 1962 that 18 of us traveled... That is the voice of Fannie Lou Heyman. She is the head of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, an integrated group of delegates who sought to take the seats of the 
quote-unquote normal Mississippi delegation at the Democratic National Convention because the normal ones had been elected in violation of party rules. The MFDP alleged that since black voters had been systematically barred from voting in the primaries, those delegates could not sit and vote, and since there was an opening, the MFDP would fill it. Fun story about that clip we just came in with, though. Fannie Lou Hayman, in that moment, is testifying to the Democratic National Convention all the facts I just told you. This is live on television. But LBJ doesn't want it to be live on television, and so he calls an impromptu press conference one he knows everybody's going to switch to because it may very well be LBJ's vice presidential announcement. This scene in Atlantic City, but now we switch to the White House and NBC's Robert Gorelsky. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. On this day, nine months ago. So why would Johnson, the recent hero of the civil rights movement, The man who passed one of the most famous bills of all time, lauded by the NAACP, lauded by Martin Luther King. Why is he looking to get this woman off anybody's television? Well, Johnson already had a short temper with the riots that were popping up across the nation that we covered earlier in this series, blaming, quote, that Muslim ex end quote, for fanning the flames in New York City. But with the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, he saw more than just racial strife. He saw another push by the Kennedys to make him an unelectable candidate. He sees Bobby and his Justice Department cronies' fingerprints on all of it. And I I rather think that this... Freedom Party was born in the Justice Department. This is it. This is, the, this is the chaos they wanted. This is the coup that they are executing. Johnson sees his enemy rise before him. Kennedy Knight arrives, draped in the emotion of the moment. Bobby introduces a film honoring JFK. Or at least he tries to. As soon as he walks out on stage... He is greeted by an ovation, a 12-minute, unbroken, standing ovation. Context here. The ovation that Robert Kennedy gets at the 1964 Democratic Convention is roughly half as long as the speech that Joe Biden gave at the 2020 convention. That's just the applause! Okay, let's pause here. 
Because right now, the president of the United States is in shambles. And we're about to come to a controversial moment that has no easy answers. Here's what we know. LBJ believes Bobby is coming for the nomination. And right now, he is ordering his team to draft a speech saying that the president of the United States, Lyndon Baines Johnson, will not seek the nomination for president and is indeed retiring from public service. I uh, uh, suggest that the representatives from all states of this union uh, selected for the purpose of selecting a Democratic nominee and uh, uh, for president and vice president proceed to, to do their duty uh, and that, uh, that uh, no consideration be given to, uh, to me because I'm absolutely unavailable. So how seriously should we take this? Indeed, four years later, LBJ does decline to seek re-election when he feels the pressure from within his own party. But right now? For me, I find it a bit rich. I tend to believe that this again is the Wheeler Dealer at work. The paranoia and depression are real. But I think he's testing those around him. He's seeing who exactly he can trust, who's going to push back and beg him not to resign. Is there anybody around him that's going to be happy that he's walking out the door? Because he's inspecting their faces for smiles. Still, it's a revealing moment for one of the most effective manipulators in political history, the idea that he would flirt with leaving the office. The man who got everything he wanted would give it up right now, seed a victory to a sworn enemy. Or maybe he really did think it was inevitable. I mean, listen to that crowd. Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman. I wish to speak uh, just for a few moments. I first uh, want to thank all of you, the delegates to the Democratic National Convention, and the supporters of the Democratic Party, for all that you did for President John F. Kennedy. by the way, ran about 12 minutes. I want to... And yet, I want to... the dagger never falls. Bobby wasn't trying to execute a coup. Or at least he didn't successfully. He never seeks the nomination. Johnson doesn't retire. The MFDP accepts a compromise deal and... Bobby announces that he's going to run for Senate in New York. LBJ accepts his nomination and names Hubert Humphrey his vice presidential nomination. And so, two of JFK's greatest foes from 1960 now see a gleaming chance to etch themselves 
into history. So let's take a little step back here now that we have both teams on the field. LBJ and Humphrey will take on Barry Goldwater and William E. Miller. So let's swing it on over to the Goldwater camp for a second. They never wanted to run against LBJ. They don't think they have much of a shot. They barely scraped through their own party's nomination process and pissed off everybody with power in their own party. They would not receive any enthusiastic backing from party luminaries. Okay, hot shot, those are your lemons. Make lemonade. Well, there are two issues you can work with. One is tawdry, and the other's historic. Bobby Baker and Vietnam. So let's start with Baker. When people talk about the good old days of the Senate, they are talking about Bobby Baker's Senate. Arriving in D.C. in 1943, he quickly realized that the key to understanding the old boys club was through their vices. Who was a drunk? Who was a sex maniac? Who was honest? Who could be bought? Baker knew it all. He became fast friends with Senate newcomer Lyndon Johnson. Here's how they met according to Baker. Lyndon came up to him and said, Mr. Baker, they tell me you're the smartest son of a bitch over here. Baker says, well, whoever told you that lied. I know all the staff on our side. I know who the drunks are, and I know whose word is good. LBJ shot back, then you're the man I want to know. And so began an alliance that would define both of their careers. When Lyndon became the majority leader, Baker was elevated to secretary of the majority and eventually treasurer of the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. That meant Baker controlled who got campaign money from the party and who didn't. LBJ's infamous booze-soaked railroad trip through the South in 1960 that helped JFK win the election? Baker arranged it. And you can expect that at least some of the things LBJ gave the wary Southern senators involved exactly how much they could expect for their campaigns should they go rogue on a party's presidential nominee. Baker became one of the most influential men in Washington, but not one of the richest. So he struck out to make himself exactly that. He builds the Carousel Motel in Ocean City, Maryland, a burgeoning destination for residents of the D.C.-adjacent Mid-Atlantic, but delays make the money burn faster, which means he needs more of it. So he starts another business with Senator Kerr of Oklahoma. They'd use their connections to install vending machines in government buildings. Baker could then borrow money from that and keep his real estate ventures afloat. And in the meantime, they could have a little fun. Baker is the originator of the Quorum Club, an infamous den of sin frequented by the who's who of the Senate. Located in the Carroll Arms Hotel, right across the street, the Quorum Club gave senators refuge from the publicly available bar, which was also frequented by journalists. 
You want to get sloppy drunk? You want to have sensitive conversations with a lobbyist about an upcoming vote? Want to sleep with your mistress? Want to meet a new mistress? For the Quorum Club, membership has its perks. One of the most popular ladies of the Quorum Club was a German stunner, Ellen Romatich. She became very popular with a lot of the boys, including President Kennedy. That caught the attention of the FBI, who believed Ellen could be an East German spy, so Attorney General Robert Kennedy had Ellen deported. Oh, how the Quorum Club must have wept. Even more so because everything was about to come crashing down like a can of Pepsi tumbling down a vending machine. Because that vending machine operation that Baker started, well... There was another politically connected vending machine company that was backed by Senator Everett Dirksen. That vending machine company didn't like another politically connected vending machine company sniffing around their corners, so they blew the whistle. And Baker, the real estate, the money, the connections, the women... The booze, the quorum club, just got caught with their pants down. This was serious stuff. A corruption scandal with a man who knew all the dirt on all the Senate, as close as he is to the vice president, peddling women to the president? Baker tries to head it off at the pass. He has a four-martini lunch at the quorum club, and quits all governmental positions. It didn't work. A Senate investigation rages through 1963, and the flames reach higher and higher. There's serious questions on whether or not JFK is going to have to jettison LBJ from the ticket for 64 because he's becoming too radioactive when... Here is a bulletin from CBS News. Further details on an assassination attempt against President Kennedy in Dallas, Texas. The world stops. The investigation drops. Everyone forgets. But Barry could help them remember. Straight Arrow Barry was not a quorum club lout. He wasn't Eskimo brothers with half the Senate. In fact... He could use this entire mess as a big, sticky example of why government isn't the solution to everything. Because government solutions just mean more money runs through the government, and this is what happens when the government gets more money. Not results, booze-soaked fornicating with shady insider deals done during the refractory periods. Barry mentions Baker in speeches, but he's not able to stick it to LBJ. Mostly because Barry's bad at messaging. Beyond his central appeal that conservatism is the correct path, he drives his campaign staff nuts with his inability to localize his message or dial up rhetoric that would really make LBJ sweat. 
Barry doesn't clarify his thoughts about Social Security in Florida. He doesn't clarify critical quotes about the Tennessee Valley Authority and the Bible Belt. Barry's really just only good at being Barry. And Barry isn't a muckraker. LBJ easily swats away the Baker claims as old news. But at least Barry tried with that. He doesn't even really put Vietnam on the table. See, behind closed doors, LBJ is very concerned with how Vietnam is going. Here he is trying to frame the issue with one of his men in the Pentagon. Uh, I want you to dictate to me a memorandum of a couple of pages. Uh, Four-letter words and short sentences several paragraphs so I can read it and study it and commit it to memory. Not for the purpose of using it now. I'm not going to give out your figures on 20,000 killed last year compared to five. But on uh, the situation in Vietnam, the Vietnam picture, if you had to put it in 600 words or maybe 1,000 words if you have to go that long. But uh, just, just like you talk, uh, I'd like for you to say that there are several courses that could be followed. We could send our own uh, divisions in there and our own Marines in there, and they could start attacking the Vietcom. And the results that would likely flow from that. Uh, we could uh, come out of there and say we're willing to neutralize, let them uh, neutralize South Vietnam and let the, the communists take North Vietnam. As soon as we get out, they could uh, swallow up South Vietnam, and that would go. We could uh, pull out and say, to hell with you, we're going to have Fortress America, we're going home. And that would mean that, uh, that here's what had happened in Thailand, and here's what had happened in the Philippines, and come on back, get us back to Honolulu. Or we can uh, say this is the Vietnamese War, and they've got 200,000 men, and they're untrained, and We've got to bring their morale up. They have nothing really to fight for because of the type of government they've had. We can put in socially conscious people and try to get them to improve their their own government and the, what the people get out of their own government. We can train them how to fight, and, and 200,000 ultimately will be able to take care of these 25,000. And that, uh, after considering all of these, it seems that... Uh, the latter offers the best alternative for America to follow. Now, if the latter has failed, uh, then uh, we have to make another decision. But at this point, it has not failed. And uh, in the last month, uh, uh, X number of Viet Cong were killed and X number of South Vietnamese. The last year, 20,000 killed, 5,000. While we have lost a total of 100 people, in one day in Korea, we lost a thousand or whatever it is. Things are bad and getting worse in Vietnam. And no matter how much LBJ wants to punt this beyond the election, a public airing of how bad things were getting and how close Johnson was to deploying American men via a draft would have materially changed this election and possibly the fate of this nation. Barry was not a fan of prolonged conflicts. Indeed, he favored quick, decisive action. 
He despised conflicts that cost American lives because politicians found half measures more sellable to the public and prospective voters than full ones. Barry criticized Johnson's policy in Vietnam as aimless, but in a private meeting with LBJ, agreed to keep further details about the particulars of the facts of the ground in Vietnam out of the campaign for patriotic purposes. Still, he saw a looming disaster, probably one worse than the Korea nightmare. The Democrats were going to lead the country into another land war in Asia, another parade of half measures that get American boys killed, another generation of babies without fathers, all because of these dithering bureaucrats worried about their Q rating. We are America, Barry believed the most fearsome military the world has ever seen with weapons at our disposal that cowed the fearsome Japanese war machine and ended a world war. If we're going to battle a global threat of communism, Barry said, we're doing ourselves no favors by tying one hand behind our back. Nuclear weapons should be on the table and our enemies should know that when they calculate their moves against our interests. And at the very least, publicly, our leaders should not shy away from talking about using them. Certainly not in Vietnam. And with that, LBJ had his opening. Vote for President Johnson on November 3rd. The stakes are too high for you to stay home. That is quite possibly the most influential presidential attack ad of all time. It's called the Daisy ad. It aired only once on television. It depicts a young girl in a field picking petals off a flower only to have her adorable cadence merge with a missile command countdown. What follows is a massive mushroom cloud, presumably vaporizing our adorable heroine and everyone she's ever known. It is there to play off the central theme of Johnson's campaign against Goldwater. He's a mentally unstable lunatic who will get the United States into a nuclear war. Goldwater's slogan of In Your Heart, You Know He's Right. Johnson parodies with In Your Gut, You Know He's Nuts. 
LBJ bolsters the general hawkishness of Barry on nuclear weapons with the fact that Goldwater is also a good quote. In reference to the moonshot, Barry once told a reporter he'd rather launch a rocket, quote, into the men's room of the Kremlin. While Barry is a staunch anti-communist, history agrees that was a joke. And yet the stern nature of Goldwater made him an easy target. But initiating a nuclear holocaust wasn't the only line of attack, and it wasn't the only joke that LBJ takes out of context with great, great effect. The sawing you hear is the east coast of the United States being separated from the rest of the states, Looney Tunes style. In a Saturday evening post article dated August 31st, 1963, Barry Goldwater said, Sometimes I think this country would be better off if we could just saw off the eastern seaboard and let it float out to sea. Can a man who makes statements like this be expected to serve all the people justly and fairly? Vote for President Johnson on November 3rd. The stakes are too high for you to stay home. And both of those are shy and reserved compared to the commercial that Johnson makes to highlight Barry Goldwater's vote on civil rights. We represent the majority of the people in Alabama who hate niggerism, Catholicism, Judaism, and all the isms of the whole world. So said Robert Creel of the Alabama Ku Klux Klan. He also said, I like Barry Goldwater. He needs our help. Vote for President Johnson on November 3rd. Now, to Johnson's credit, that last one never ran on television, but it is available on YouTube. The point with all of these is to say that Barry wasn't a man with a different way to look at government. He's a mentally unstable racist, eager to rip your grandmother's social security card out of her hands. If you were born east of the Mississippi, you're the reason America's in decline. And the press bit. Fact Magazine ran an issue on Goldwater wherein they asked psychiatrists who had never met or examined Barry if they believed he was mentally fit to be president. Unsurprisingly, they said he was not. This bothered Goldwater so much that he sued the publishers after the election and won on the basis of defamation. The noise around this issue even led the American Psychiatric Association to create the Goldwater Rule, forbidding members to diagnose anybody they don't have a doctor-client relationship with. And what's more, when Barry fought back, including attempting to use some of the Baker stuff, LBJ admonished him for playing dirty, coining the term smear lash quote Johnson it's not the backlash that's gone it's not the front lash it's the smear lash because when some people get desperate they get dangerous and when they are dangerous they are not cautious and when they get to smearing and fearing some of their own people don't want to go with them without a doubt Johnson's campaign against Goldwater set a new bar for how hyperbolic 
presidential television campaign ads could be. It initiated a new kind of attack ad, specifically designed to use the strength of television. Let the big metaphorical visuals and the sound do the talking. It's something we've seen even in this 2020 race. You have reached the 911 police emergency line. Due to defunding of the police department, we're sorry, but no one is here to take your call. If you're calling to report a rape, please press 1. To report a murder, press 2. To report a home invasion, press 3. For all other crimes, leave your name and number, and someone will get back to you. Our estimated wait time is currently five days. Goodbye. And then, of course, there are the allegations that LBJ took things even further to secure an already pretty secure victory. Goldwater campaign operatives complained that their strategy meetings were being leaked. They would book an event in some town in America, and miraculously, the Johnson campaign would beat them to that town by 12 hours. The campaign came to believe, and the CIA later admitted, that they spied on Goldwater 64 and passed the information to Johnson. The campaign never made a public issue of it. And they were even gifted one final October surprise. Walter Jenkins, a top aide to LBJ, was arrested for disorderly conduct in a Washington, D.C. men's room with another man. A gay scandal tied so closely to Johnson after the Bobby Baker scandal could further tar RBJ as a scion of immorality. And Goldwater passed. Even after being labeled a lunatic bent on world destruction, he just didn't have the skills or the inclination to play that dirty. It's exactly what he expected from Johnson. It's the reason why he was so thrilled at the idea of a genteel campaign with Kennedy where they would both go from town to town and talk about the different ways they'd like to be loyal public servants. Goldwater was cooked. And yet, the true believers stuck with him. In the dying moments of a doomed campaign, a political novice made his first big step on the national political stage. History now recognizes it as the passing of a torch, the moment the Goldwater movement mattered more than Goldwater. But on October 27, 1964, an actor, and former Democrat appeared on nationwide television to stump for Barry. It was entitled A Time for Choosing, and that political noob is Ronald Reagan. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. We will keep in mind and remember that Barry Goldwater has faith in us. He has faith that you and I have the ability and the dignity and the right to make our own decisions 
and determine our own destiny. Thank you very much. As we know, Reagan wouldn't look back from here. But unfortunately for Barry's Election Day prospects, neither would LBJ. And now with the polls still open throughout most of the United States, through our uh, CBS, IBM vote profile analysis, we are able to say that Lyndon Johnson is the probable winner uh, in Kentucky, the first state to be recorded on our board for Barry Lyndon Goldwater tonight. makes his final campaign stop in 1964 in Fredonia, Arizona, where he'd ended previous campaigns for Senate. He's on the business end of the biggest electoral loss in American history. In hindsight, he tells friends and reporters, wouldn't it be nice if we could just run for six weeks, like in England? On the Johnson Ranch in Johnson City, Texas, sat a man who finally did it. 486 electoral votes to 52. Barry takes only five states. LBJ sweeps the rest. The presidency now his and his alone. The landslide achieved. The mandate thunderous. The South, well, those were four of the five states lost, but who can even squint that tight to see it when the numbers are this big? The Kennedys? Oh, they'd be back. Bobby won his Senate seat in New York, and LBJ knew he'd have to face him one more time in 68. What Johnson doesn't know is that in this moment of glory, it's the pinnacle of his career. Vietnam is indeed going to be another Korea. And it will sink his presidency. In his heart, he might have even known that Barry was right. Racial strife only increases. The Johnson name becomes synonymous with imperialist death for a generation. But he can't know that now. The man who has just completed a task and can now appreciate all the steps he took to do it can only look backwards. He can't tell the future. But now he is king. The trailblazer, the wheeler dealer who navigated it all. The first Southern president sits on his ranch, the world at his command. Raise the Dead is written, researched, and recorded by me, Justin Robert Young. It was edited by Dog and Pony Show Audio in Oakland, California. Original score by Carson Pace. For a list of all the books used for research, please go to our website, raisethedeadpodcast.com. For a compilation of our written transcripts and an audiobook version of this series featuring bonus conversations, please head on over to raisethedeadpodcast.com slash complete.
If you would like my take on modern politics as they happen, please find my podcast, Politics, 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 where all podcasts are found. And finally, you can follow me on Twitter at Justin R. Young. And now for things I didn't have a chance to get to during the episode. Let's talk about the tapes. LBJ is the one who installed all these tape machines that wind up becoming famous during the Watergate uh, explosion. In fact, when LBJ shows incoming President Nixon that these tape machines exist, Dick is initially horrified and tells his staff to have each and every one of them ripped out. He then has second thoughts, and the rest is history. Watergate is also the reason why we have access to this audio. After the Watergate tapes are revealed to be in existence, and the Nixon campaign tells anybody who will listen, oh, that's just a normal thing the presidents do. LBJ had it. The LBJ library, which had been ordered to seal these tapes for 50 years, then review them, then publish only the ones that weren't damaging, realized that the same lawsuits that were being filed by historians to turn over the Watergate tapes are coming for LBJ. So in a preemptive move, they publish a vast majority of them. And and you might have actually heard several of them uh, uh, in the past. There's one where he's talking about how he's going to get his pants hemmed. And he talks about his bunghole. At LBJ. What a rascal. Speaking of LBJ. LBJ is cheap. He is a cheap man. He is very cheap. He... He's just kind of a piece of work. And there's some of this audio where he is trying to get a barber up to D.C. or down from New York City to do the hair of the First Lady and his daughters and all the, all the women in his staff. And he leads off by telling this guy, who almost assuredly would have done this for free, hey, look, I'm not a rich man. Uh, I don't have a whole lot of money. So you're going to have to do it for free and you're not going to be able to tell anybody that you did it. And he's like over the moon. Of course, Mr. President, of course. Now, this is funny because LBJ was a rich man. Indeed, a lot of his fortune came from media. The Johnson family put the first television station in Austin, Texas on the air. KTBC-TV Channel 7 in 1952. It remained the only channel on Austin television for far longer than many other major media markets. That meant even after network television had started rolling out, KTBC-TV, Channel 7 in Austin, would air programming from all of them, sometimes time-shifting programs because they would have otherwise been running up against each other in the same time slot. 
this only happened because then-Senator and eventual Vice President and President Johnson was politically connected. The clips also have a few great moments that demonstrate what a team LBJ and Lady Bird were. Uh, Lady Bird is one of the few people that can actually, like, tell Lyndon what's on her mind. And, and at one point, she just downloads a very specific critique of a speech that he's making. Speaking of speeches, something that we skip over almost entirely in this uh, episode is the Great Society speech. It's the high watermark of LBJ's career because not a lot goes right past now. But the War on Poverty and the Great Society, along with the civil rights legislation, really are the backbone of uh, LBJ's checkered term as president. As for Bobby, obviously he uh, wins in New York for Senate. Who knows exactly how close he was coming to try to pull a coup at the DNC, but he makes the decision that uh, discretion is the better part of valor. He's going to reload and get ready for 1968. And boy, is that its own story. In fact, it's what we'll talk about in the conclusion of our 1960s trilogy when we visit the story of 1968. But before that, we are back with one more episode this season. It is the mailbag. Any questions that you guys have for me that you've sent in throughout the last several weeks, we will compile and read. Until then, hopefully you've enjoyed this season. My name is Justin Robert Young. Good night. Dog and Pony Show Audio. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>